and welcome back to the Forsters Northern Law Podcast. I'm Miri Stickland, Knowledge Development Lawyer in the Commercial Real Estate Team, and I'm joined today again by Helen Marsh, who's a partner in our residential team. I think Helen is nearly holding the record for joining me the most amount of times on the podcast. Hi, hey. Helen. I think I so. I think, it's, I think it's you against Vicky. Oh. <laughs> Um, and alongside Helen today, we've got Ollie Claridge from our tax group. Hi, Ollie. Hello there. We were just working out before we started. It's nearly a year ago since I last spoke to Ollie on all things residential tax. And, and it was quite a different world at that point. So the starting point for today is with you, Helen, in terms of the high value residential market, what has been happening over the last year? Okay, a lot has been happening. It's been very, very busy, perhaps, you know, unexpectedly. I, I think when COVID first hit, we all thought that that was the end of the industry, but in fact, quite the opposite happened. And I think um, there's a variety of reasons for that. The one that's in everyone's minds right now is that there, there was um, a stamp duty cut introduced, which Ollie can talk more about. And that's coming to an end soon. So that's, you know, encouraging a lot of activity from people who want to take advantage of that. Um, but there's also a lot of activity at the higher end where that stamp duty cut perhaps isn't quite such a factor because compared to the overall bill, it's it's relatively insignificant. Um, and there just is, there has been a lot of movement and transactions and, and competitiveness at, at the higher level. I've seen um, properties that have been on the market for literally years with no offers or nothing acceptable and in the last um six to nine months they've been snapped up and several people bidding for them oh in many different situations i've seen that there's been lots of high value transactions um which has been fun for us lots of interesting work another factor for i think all the activity in the market is that a lot of people are um moving because in response to what's happened, there's a there's been um, a bit of an a bit of an exodus out to the countryside from the cities, and and not maybe all the way to the countryside, but just a little bit further out. So people want more space. They want out. They don't want to get st- stuck in a lockdown again um, in a, a small flat with no space. So if they can, they're moving to somewhere that has more space um, for some outdoor space, particularly and some extra space so that they can work at home comfortably and they're not all fighting for the same um, spare bedroom. And also because if if people think they will long-term be perhaps traveling into the office less regularly than they were, a longer commute is more acceptable. And then once you've moved out of the city, you then might want to purchase a little pied-à-terre in the city so that you can have a base there perhaps for one or two nights a week and, it's to save you your long commute anyway so there's there's a variety of reasons why people properties needs have changed quite dramatically um, and that's been reflected in what we've been doing um, so it's been very busy and and quite exciting and of course one of the impacts on the market sort of more recently has been issues around cladding and in particular getting ews1 certificates how has that impacted on the sort of high-end residential market? Well, I mean, it's impacted on all all the market with flats. It's it's a really tough problem, and it has put a uh, it has stalled a lot of sales and even remortgages. It's a really hard position for people to be in, because if you can't get that certificate, you can't sell. 
and you can't remortgage. A lot of the buildings will be fine, they just need to get the certificate and there's a huge backlog because not many people are qualified to issue them and they're, you know, massively in demand, obviously. Um, and then you've got, you know, much worse, the buildings that aren't actually safe and don't qualify for the certificate even once you can get the survey around. And they've, they've got this problem of living in an unsafe building and then the cost of repairs. Um, it, it's a huge problem and I'm glad that it's on the government's radar. And over on the tax side of things, Helen's mentioned the um, stamp duty holiday. What other tax changes are we going to see coming into effect, Ollie? I think the uh, the big one, well, the, the sort of the the big double whammy will be the the end of that the um, the holiday and the the bringing in of the non-resident um, SDLT charge. Um, so from from April the the thresholds will should be dropping back down unless there is a, a change in government policy to the pre-COVID um, rates with the, the normal bans. And then for non-resident purchases, um, and that is individuals, companies, uh, trusts, and anyone who's joint, uh, doing a joint purchase alongside any, any one member of the purchasing team is um, in non-resident, they will be facing these additional non-resident uh, SDLT band so it's a two percent increase on every band and that is also on top of the higher rate bands if the transaction qualifies for for the higher rate so you could get you're getting a, a, an increasingly complicated um, SDLT position where you're having depending on the circumstances um, and the background and the situation of, of the purchaser or purchasers you could have uh, a, a whole multitude of different um, SDLT rates, which you need to work out which apply, and then to do the SDLT calculation. So you're potentially having a top uh, SDLT rate of 17% for non-resident purchases, which is quite a, quite an eye-watering uh, consideration for um, when you think about how much that can add on top of your transaction. Yeah, absolutely. So with that in mind, I imagine lots of clients are seeking to work towards um, completing before that end of March deadline. Helen, how are we able to sort of help clients in that regard? Well, um, I suppose the main thing is, you know, doing getting on with the job efficiently and looking, I suppose, for solutions rather than computer says no responses to problems. Um so one thing is how we get our searches back quickly for the places where we, we can't get the official searches in time at the end of March. You, we look into the option of getting the personal searches or sometimes if it's acceptable to the bank getting um, search indemnity insurance so that the search problem won't scupper it. Um, we, we just, we've got ways of being more flexible. Um, obviously, we're very proactive and we make sure things move along, um, even, you know, if people are being slow, we will kind of encourage things along with a bit of light chasing um, um, or just, you know, being proactive with solutions. And if if there is a problem or a block, get advising our clients on, well, what does that mean? Why do you need that piece of information or what 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 are the, what are the risks there so that then they can decide if they want to, you know, they can accept that risk, but they can't make the decision if they're not fully informed. Um, so we're taking, you know, an overall approach to the whole thing. And and one thing that's important as we get closer to the deadline is just being um, aware that if your completion date is very close to the deadline, what happens if that slips for, for you know, unforeseen circumstances, the seller for some reason it not able to complete when they thought they were. 
Um, so we're trying to allow for a, you know, a, a buffer period so that if it slips by a bit, we're still safely within the deadline. And then negotiating on both sides, who should bear the risk of that slipping? If um, the seller is late for some reason, and we go, we missed, we missed our our deadline. Should that be the buyer that pays takes on the extra fifteen thousand pounds of tax liability, or should that be shared? So that's something that we're introducing in our negotiations, um, so that both parties end up with a fair result. Thanks, Helen. So, Ollie, turning back to you, what are the other potential tax reliefs that purchasers should be alive to at the moment? I think there's there's a, a few tax considerations that, that should be on people's radar. On the sort of the high end uh, residential property, one to always look out for is whether your property purchase qualifies for multiple dwellings relief, which is a sort of an averaging relief when your, when your transaction constitutes more than one dwelling. Sometimes it's incredibly obvious if you're purchasing your, your, your um, house out in the country and it comes with a cottage in the grounds then um, you can think, okay, that is that a second dwelling? Does it have all the necessary characteristics? Has it got its own uh, sleeping area? Has it got its own kitchen? Has it got its own washing facilities? If so, whilst you think you're, you know, you're, you're only, mainly just buying the big house, you're also buying this, this um, second dwelling. But it can happen in, say, you know, your London townhouse, um, you realise that the basement has its own separate entrance to the, to the street, um, it's got a lockable door uh, separating uh, the basement from the from the main house, um, and it's got its own uh, cooking and washing facilities. You know, sometimes those you find that those things have been used in the past as as a, as a rental uh, property you know, um, or a granny annex, or for for whatever reason. And it, it's not always immediately obvious just from um, the plans that that we get to see whether. Uh, this is a second dwelling or if it is just um, an, another part of the main house but when clients are looking around properties if they see oh this has got that granny annex it's got that that uh, separate um, access to the outside you can start thinking that that potentially can qualify for multiple dwellings relief which will provide a reduction uh, in the SDLT paid because you are actually buying uh, more than one dwelling so um, and I think that that's one that that people are becoming a bit more alive to. Uh, we're certainly trying to make sure that, that we're asking those questions when, whenever we can, if anything, if anything gives it away, but it, it's not always entirely obvious from, from us. And it's one that sort of, we need the client who's actually been on the ground and seen the property to, to, to give us that steer on. I think the other relief that, that comes up a lot um, and that, that sometimes has slight uh, misunderstanding is the main residence replacement relief from the higher rates. So the, the higher rates are an additional 3% on every single tax band. And those are designed to catch people that are buying additional property. But there is this relief for people that are replacing their main residence. Uh, so um, if you've sold your previous main residence that you've lived in and used as a main re residence within three years of purchasing the new one, um, then you get this relief, but it is a replacement. It's not a, you get a relief for a main residence. So you do get some slightly uh, situations that clients don't expect. So if they have never owned a main residence, um, a freehold main residence, they've only ever rented on short-term uh, ASTs, but they've got their own 
rental property portfolio or they've inherited property they come to buy their their main residence and find that you know this is their first residence they think it should be without the additional rates but actually because they own other property they are subject to it and they haven't disposed of the previous main residence so they don't have that ability to um to qualify for the relief similarly if um you still own your previous main residence maybe you're renting it out maybe you want to keep it um as a pied-a-terre and you're uh, buying something else because you haven't disposed of that main residence um, you still have that interest in it then you won't qualify for the main residence replacement relief even though you are buying a new main residence and I think that that is something that uh, people often don't quite understand they, they hear main residence relief and they think oh if I'm going to be using this property as a main residence I will automatically not uh, not have to pay the higher rates which which isn't always the way and you can get these relatively um unfair feeling results where it is your first purchase but for whatever reason you've got other property interests and um, and so you could not possibly qualify uh, for the relief so it's just one to be aware of that sometimes in some circumstances that sdlt bill can be higher uh, than first first anticipated ollie can i ask a question of course the three-year period to claim it back is there any talk of extending that because of the delays caused by covid it's actually one where um if there are extenuating circumstances um genuinely extenuating circumstances um then you you can talk to h speak to hmrc and, and say you know i'm outside the period but uh, but it's not something that i've ever dealt with or um i've heard mu uh, much of it's not something that i would I would necessarily hang my hat on for, for anything less than a, than a quite extreme circumstance. Okay. No, there's no move to make it longer for everyone. Not that I'm aware of. So I actually, I guess the sort of takeaway from that then is to get, is, you know, encouraging people to get in contact early on so that you can explore with them what the kind of reliefs are that, that, that they may or may not qualify for. I think absolutely. Obviously you don't want the, the sort of the tax uh, tail to wag the transaction dog but um certainly the having that unexpected uh tax hit or there being situations that there could potentially be a reduction that you weren't aware of it's a lot easier if uh, you think about the, these things sort of things early on and check them all off and you know you've got that certainty you know your position uh, and you can sort of approach the, your, your transaction knowing what your tax liability is going to be Thanks, Ollie. Okay, so throwing it open to both of you, um, looking forward, what sort of trends are emerging and what further tax changes might we expect to see? I think we're probably expecting a, a drop in activity after the after we've with this flurry of excitement hit the deadline. No, inevitably there'll probably be a drop off for a bit after that, but I'm not expecting it to be um, you know a cliff edge because there's just so much energy in the market generally, at, you know, at all levels. Um, and then hopefully soon, our overseas investors and buyers will be allowed back in the country, and that will see a huge surge in um, interest and activity. So um, I'm optimistic um, about the next year or two. I don't know though what's, what's planned in terms of wealth or mansion taxes. What do you think, Ollie? Well, yes, I was, I was going to say that, that property is quite easy to tax, certainly the property transactions. Uh, uh, the government has sort of realised that this is quite a good way 
of raising revenue. Certainly uh, something they're going to have to think about in the sort of the post-COVID world when they look at the, the financial impact of the pandemic. Um, and as we've seen from the, the higher rates and uh, the upcoming non-resident rates, SDLT is becoming a little bit of a political football in that governments are introducing these things to meet their political goals or to be seen to be, seen to be uh, meeting their political goals, uh, both in terms of people not owning too many homes or uh, encouraging people to have that, uh, to be getting onto the property ladder and to dissuading um, uh, non-residents from purchasing. So... I think it's one where if there if there becomes other big issues, it could be something that the government could um, add further to the complexity. Uh, as sort of Helen mentioned, I think that risks of, of of mansion taxes or or similar aren't impossible. They're they're often uh, quite strongly fought back against politically, but if there is political space to them, uh, they do get suggested. And, and certainly uh, the, the current Conservative government with its, its sort of political goals of, of keeping its sort of red wall voters might be more um, interested in, in doing what would be attacking normally, normally traditionally uh, Tory voters. So I don't think it's impossible for that sort of thing to happen either. So, so really, I, I think that uh, whilst there's nothing concrete at the moment, I wouldn't be surprised to see further changes to or further tweaks to um to the taxation of, of residential property thanks both so much for joining me today if listeners would like to access any of our other podcasts they're available via soundcloud and spotify and all your other usual podcast providers oh apple podcasts i nearly forgot them uh, if you'd like further news and views from the firm please head over to our website forsters.co.uk or you can find us on all the usual social media platforms linkedin facebook twitter and instagram and until next time goodbye Forster's Northern Law podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forster's LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequential loss arising from the use of, reliance on or reference to this podcast. Forster's LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The Northern Law podcast and all copyright in it is the property of Forster's LLP and it should not be used, reproduced or quoted, whether in whole or part, without Forster's LLP's prior written consent. Mm-hmm.